Welcome to Scholars of Play, a podcast normally dedicated to the critical discussion of games and their place in society and the academy, but which today will consist of a doe-eyed, nostalgic, enthusiastic discussion of games and their place in our hearts. Welcome, all of our listeners. My name is my name is Derek Price. I'm Terrell Taylor. I'm Kyle Romero. Yeah, they didn't they didn't hear they didn't know that intro was coming. So that was that was a fun little bonus. I'm just um, so happy right now. It's so you know? good. Yeah, this is <laughs> just, everything's so great. Everything is this fantastic. Is a podcast. This episode's about joy. All about joy. Just letting it into your heart. Yeah. Um, today we're doing something special, a little something a little different. We've done a lot of older games, and by older I mean the you know, it's relative, practically prehistoric. We've done we've done no games that like came out in the last year or two or three, right? So we've always tried to do something that's a little more accessible. We uh, we talked about it for a little a long time, but we finally decided we love this game so much, and it was so so such an important game for us in this year that we decided we just had to do it. And that game is uh, the Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild. So this is the the Zelda game that came out, it was basically the launch game for the Switch. I mean, there were other games like ARMS and uh, One Two Switch, and those games were cool too. But I mean, this is the one that sort of captured captured our uh, our, our attention and our hearts most definitely. I would say, even though the library of Switch games has expanded a bit, it's still the game for the Switch, and it's the yeah. one that I intend to buy when I buy a yes. Switch. <laughs> so, um, so basically, yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, Breath of the Wild and the sort of theme or or the angle that we're approaching it uh we sort of arrived at after a lots of i mean at least on my part a lot of hand wringing i was basically too i was too worried that i just want to love this game on mic and that that would be really boring to listen yeah. to um whether or not it's going to be boring is still up for debate but <laughs> i don't uh, think there's much debate but. terrell terrell <laughs> Terrell, Terrell actually had a really fantastic way for us to approach this game that, for me, was just like a sort of wonderful, sort of uh, relaxing, comforting uh, game that I that I just sort of like really appreciated and enjoyed, but didn't know how to think about critically. But then, sort of, Terrell had a different approach for that. So yeah, uh, my idea was for us to take a look at the introduction to a book. Uh, called The Limits of Critique, written by Rita Felsky. Uh, and this introduction, um, I'm going to first sort of come out and say one thing. I think the <laughs> Derek and Kyle will also agree with me that we really enjoyed uh, this introduction to this yeah. text, mm-hmm. um, and that we thought that Felsky's really getting onto something important. Because of that, I'm going to try and keep this to a very decent summary of the text and sure. not gush onto all the things that I love about it too much. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the one thing I think all of us are trying not to do is just like, you know, give us, oh, we loved everything. Everything's uh-huh. great. Yeah. But, you know, to, to temper that with with our typical mood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like, and, and the one thing, what I wanted to sort of highlight before we even got into the text was like why we chose this text in the first place. Yeah. And, and for me, that was, I mean, you basically suggested, like, so for those of you who are listening and maybe not in graduate school right now or not at a university or you were, but you're not there anymore, uh, which is probably most people that that have you know lives out there uh, living it. Um, criticism as a sort of style of thinking in the way that our author sort of puts it, or a sort of mode of operating, a, a sort of way of engaging with media objects like video games or, or even books or uh, films that you really like, is, at least in my experience, it's been like the way. It's not one of many. It is the way to think about things in grad school. Um, and, and and that's what gave me such anxiety about uh, doing this game because I, I couldn't be critical. Or I felt like if I was going to be critical of it, I would really super miss what's really interesting, valuable, and like worth talking about in this game. And that's why when Terrell sort of had this idea um, for, uh, brought up this, uh, this idea of this, I think you called it an anti-critical perspective on, on sort of how to do, uh, do, you know, academic work, but just how to think about stuff. That was what really got me excited about this this text that you chose. Because so. there's something to be said for it is kind of, you know, it is the mode of thinking, right, in grad school. And I think it's also kind of a set of learned behaviors. Like, you're so. told right when you get into grad school, like, you have to approach everything with, in Ricoeur's words that Felsky quotes, the hermeneutics of suspicion, right? right. You always be skeptical. You always be kind of... Uh, a little detached from everything and say, like, how are we going to approach this? Because mm-hmm. if there's any kind of genuine 
feeling you are suddenly compromised, right? And this is why, you know, I echo Derek's sentiment. It was, I was very wary of trying to talk about Breath of the Wild because I plugged in Breath of the Wild, sat down, and I was eight years old in front of my giant, you know, yes. the, like, heavy, small TV of the 90s <laughs> or the early 2000s um, playing, you know, Ocarina of Time again, right? And so, you know, the games are different in a lot of ways, but... The, the the aesthetic, the music, everything just hit me, and I was like, I'm a tiny child. Everything's great. Yeah. Life is perfect. I don't have to have to worry about things like bills and taxes, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and so we were just really interested in get, trying to find a way to maybe not move past that nostalgia, but just understand, like, why is that happening, one? And two, what kind of role has that been playing in the way that we think about the game, the way that a variety of people are thinking about this game? And, and should we em- embrace that nostalgia or just say, right. like, that's the problem. We need to erase our humanity <laughs> in order to be critical machines. <laughs> right, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And, that, and, and, and there's the tension, like, nostalgia is such a politically loaded concept right now. Like, it's being used politically in a, in a lot of different ways. And so that just made it even more tricky. But I think, and this is where Terrell, I'd love for you to hand it back to you to sort of take us through the beginning of... <laughs> Uh, of Felsky's piece. The, the name of the, the text that we're looking at today is, uh, it's the introduction of a book by uh, Rita Felsky from 2015. It's called The Limits of Critique. Um, and I'll just toss it over to Terrell to sort of set us up with where Felsky goes in this introduction. Right. So um, one thing I want to just set up um, at the outset is this book is really talking about uh, academic modes of critique, which might be a little different than I think the role of what I think we might think most games criticism tries to do, which is cultural critique and the thing that you might see in the New York Times or the Huffington Post, Salon, so on and so forth. Uh, but that being said, I think that there are a number of ways in which what uh, Felsky is doing there um, manages to speak in important ways to both sort of uh, categories. Now, granted, she's taking her examples and talking about the sort of dominant trends within the academic side, but I think a lot of what we see within that introduction especially uh, can sort of fit within um, our context that we're thinking through here. Now, as Derek mentioned earlier, I would position Felsky as a part of a set of scholars that you could think of as sort of anti-interpretive or maybe anti-critical and that they're thinking about um, ways in which critique as a set of not just methods, but also moods or um, dispositions towards doing scholarship or doing thinking uh, tends to have some limitations or tends to sort of lock us into certain behaviors that might foreclose us in sort of some other ways. Now, a couple of other scholars that I also position here, Bruno Latour, Eve Sedgwick, uh, J.K. Gibson Graham, both of those scholars writing under that pseudonym, uh, as well as a few others. And I could go into a number of critics who I think are also doing that work, but again, exhaustive. So I think that the important thing that uh, Felsky lays out within that introduction is that she talks about the sort of mood of criticism uh, or the mood of critique as being one of disenchantment, of detachment. It is a commitment to approaching a text or an object looking to dig deep uh, to find some type of hidden truth or perhaps to step back and to see the whole truth of a certain type of thing. And that mood or approach is always one of a kind of seriousness, right? And that sort of seriousness is one that I think we typically attach to ideas about what it means to be rigorous or what it means to be um, fully critical and observant when you're doing a type of um, thinking or doing some type of analysis of a text. But I think that also comes with a certain type of um, attitude that we can sense when someone is doing a certain type of criticism or performing that type of uh, critical posture. I think sometimes we might want to call it snark. Sometimes <laughs> we want to call it cynicism. Uh, or sometimes yeah. it's anger, right? That, that we can sort of sense that when someone is critiquing something, that's the kind of posture that they hold. But it's also one of, no, I'm right. Yeah. So I'm justified in o- this. Objectivity. Right. right. There's yeah. a certain layer of objectivity that um, grants them a kind of shield from you know that sort of disposition as being seen as a kind of um, as a kind of position. They get a kind of neutrality based on their position um, as a critic, and that sort of gets us into thinking about the sort of narrative dimensions of that kind of critical posture. Um, and if we look, or I will quote briefly from page six of the introduction. The sort of cultivation of an intellectual persona 
is highly prized in literary studies and beyond. Suspicious, knowing, self-conscious, hard-headed, and tirelessly vigilant. And I like to think of it in a certain um, register as it's very much like Geralt from the Witcher series. <laughs> okay, uh, okay. And it's like Geralt because, you know, you're sort of moving through this world uh, where these objects exist. Um, and Geralt knows this world, but he's certainly not really attached to it in any particular way. He's yeah. in that world, but not of that in a certain formulation. Mm -hmm. But he does have a great knowledge of that world and its inner workings. He knows how the monsters and how the sort of arcane beings or sort of positions within this world sort of function. Right. And that sort of arcaneness to the sort of objects that we see, I think, is also something that the critic uh, tries to, to um, bring up in terms of trying to find the sort of counterintuitive, the hidden or sometimes the unflattering dimensions to something. Right. Typically, good critics and I put good critics and maybe some scare quotes there because it's not necessarily that they're um, exceptional, but they're the ones that I think that we tend to give a certain um, uh, a certain level of uh caliber or a certain level of praise to are ones that are able to sort of say, here's this object that you think looks like this, but actually mm -hmm. if I pull this rock or I perform this trick, you actually see what it really is. That there's something that's not quite there and that no one else can see it usually because of one of two reasons. And this is a sort of, you know, part of the narrative that we sort of assume to the critic. I think this is something that Felsky kind of elucidates in that introduction. And one is that we're usually too close to see it. Right, we're a part of the world, so it just kind of passes us by. Um, and a more insidious sort of um, assumption or uh, implication is that we don't want to see it. That because we are part of this world, because we sort of fall in with some of those assumptions, because we want to enjoy what it is that we enjoy and not have to think about the nasty baggage attached to it, right. we don't want to be critical. We don't want mm -hmm. to have to think, actually, no, Breath of the Wild isn't a great game. We just always impose the sort of, you know, childhood memories that we have of Ocarina of Time. If someone plays it who had never played Ocarina of Time, they wouldn't think of this, 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 this that, and the other. That mm -hmm. would be a very sort of critical um, move of Breath of the Wild that would position the critic in a certain way. Like, yes, I'm able to step out of my nostalgia and sort of escape uh, all those sort of trappings. And in that kind of position, it sort of makes the critic seem this like sort of oppositional or transformative figure. He's able to kind of break a kind of status quo or make us sort of see something about ourselves that we didn't see before. Um, and I think in an academic contest, I think there's always some sort of element to that sort of opposition or transformation that always kind of has a kind of element to it that is easy to see in certain genres. So, for example, the Marxist is always looking for the way, how has capitalism overdetermined this? Um, feminist, how has patriarchy in various forms uh, overdetermined this or make this something that actually reinforces patriarchy? That's why every movie is always like, okay, you know, even something like um, Wonder Woman that we might want to say, okay, maybe this is, has some sort of feminist themes in it. Well, no, it's actually pretty easy to go to add something like that with a sort of patriarchal or view it through a lens as how is it upholding patriarchy mm -hmm. um, in particular ways. And I think games criticism has its own version of that. You know, sometimes how does this push games forward, right? What is this doing that makes games something that wasn't what they were before? Uh, or how is this particularly bleeding edge, right? So in many ways, a critic often is beholden to some sort of standard, some sort of ideal, something that it wants to impose as a way of reading or thinking about these objects. And I think what Felsky would sort of um, assert there is that that becomes the kind of limited range of passions, pleasures, dispositions that the critic can function with. And that one of the true sort of losses of criticism in that vein is that we lose the wider range. That maybe, yes, uh, being beholden to something like um, a world without various forms of oppression or a world where a medium reaches its full potential is a good thing. But there are other values maybe values that something like nostalgia can be in the service of that we lose hold of if we maintain critique as a very sort of narrow uh, set of objects. That's fantastic. That's beautiful. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I have nothing to add and only something like as a, as a, a sort of trail off of those thoughts, which is that, you know, the, the question might be, well, so what, what are those other modes of thinking that we could draw out and, uh, and, and, and Felsky mentions a couple of them. She quotes a scholar, Helen Small, who says that, um, the, and talking about humanities work, but I think we can apply this to, to games criticism as well, uh, the work of humanities is frequently descriptive or appreciative or imaginative or provocative or speculative more than it is critical. And and she also, uh, Felsky later in the piece, advocates for, uh, you know, 
not just this hermeneutics of suspicion, but also a uh, hermeneutics of trust or restoration or recollection. These are sort of different projects that that academic work or that thinking more generally can undertake that are like really valuable, important, and helpful things. And I, I think that when we get into Breath of the Wild, we'll see that there are there are things that 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 affected all of us in ways that were both inside the game and outside of the game, sort of restorative or sort of freeing or like liberating in a way that I don't want to just dismiss as uh, a sort of escapism. Escapism seen in the strongest negative, possible negative interpretation where it's like you want to ignore your real world or some real problem and so therefore you escape. There's actually, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm actually getting to experience something through the game that I wouldn't get elsewhere. Like it's just not possible for me to realize or have this experience or something like that. So um, I, I think those those different mo if if you're if you're listening to this and you're thinking okay critique critique I, I get what critique is what are the other things it's all of those other things it's it's a, you know description and appreciation and imagination all these other kinds of kinds of uh, ways that we relate that we that we really do relate to objects with but um, perhaps especially in this podcast I mean like I you know as my dumb opening joke says I wrote you know I wrote that little in intro opening line when I, when we started doing this and I put the word critical in there. Because to me at the time, and still certainly I think after this podcast, I will still continue to think this to a large extent, critical means serious. Critical means, like like Terrell, everything that Terrell uh, sort of mentioned, critical means that's the way we do things here in academia. And, and you know, uh, it wasn't until I was forced to confront a, a sort of new thing that I realized I need more tools than criticism in my, in my sort of... Uh, you know, toolbox for, for talking about stuff. Kyle, do you have any anything you want to add? Yeah. No, I mean, I just agree with everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think Felsky highlights something really important, like I kind of, like Terrell's mentioned and highlighted so well, that, but that just criticism is not like um, an objective reality, you know, that it is a set of like tools and principles that, you know, you, even she talks about has like its own kind of narrative, you know, like it has, right. she has a quote, um, yeah, that, that, that part's good. I forgot uh, about that. On page seven, saying, rather than being a weightless, disembodied, freewheeling dance of the intellect, critique turns out to be a quite stable repertoire of stories, similes, tropes, verbal gambits, and rhetorical ploys. So that yeah. just the idea that this kind of mode of thinking that I, almost all scholars have kind of inhabited has its own kind of, you know, discourse that surrounds it, right? And it's not mm -hmm. like this kind of objective separate uh, thing that's detached from all the world, but that we've actually been kind of inculcating certain values and approaches in this supposedly objective right. Um, right. reality. So, I mean, I think I agree with Derek and, you know, I'm assuming Terrell too, but like, I think critique is good. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I don't think exactly. anyone's saying like, we don't right. need to be critical, but there's something to be said for, I've approached, especially when we decided we're going to do this episode on mm -hmm. Breath of the Wild, I would play some parts of Breath of the Wild and be like, okay, like, what can I be critical of? Like, right, I'm sure, like, okay, so like, sure. I guess this is a thing, you know, maybe like, you know, the the HUD is problematic. We got to talk about the HUD, you know? And I, like, I would mm -hmm. just be searching for things to be critical of for the sake of criticality, right? Right. And what purpose does that serve, right? If there's no goal, no objective, right? No, uh, yeah, nothing. So, yeah, I think there's something very valuable gained out of thinking more imaginatively or yeah. actively um, and think of what the text or the game, yeah. you know, the text does um rather than just simply critiquing it for the sake of you right. know we have to be right making things better you know right exactly yeah well i think that's a great transition into into our actual experiences with the game um i don't know i i mean i could start uh you know i i guess i was the first to play I believe it, you played really. it first yeah yeah the game came out in like march i think i i started playing this game uh right after an extremely busy Part. And honestly, it wasn't like I stopped being busy after that. I just like needed a break. Uh, so I started playing this, yeah, late March, and I played it maybe about an hour, hour and a half a day for like probably a month or something like that. Uh, and it was just like this wonderful, really enjoyable, really relaxing kind of kind of experience. Um, I should probably we should probably set the game up first though to sort of summarize just sort of the main points of it. Um, so Breath of the Wild is a I think the, the shortest way to describe it is it is an open world Zelda game, uh, an open world in the sense of it is a big open 3D space where you sort of take your main character Link, uh, you know, he's the sort of 
central figure of the series for a very long time, uh, and you sort of explore this giant space. Um, I mean, is it Hyrule or is it called the yeah. Great Plateau? Or... Well, you, so you start on the Great Plateau, right? You stand on the Great but Plateau. It's all Hyrule. It's all right? Hyrule, I assume. Well, I guess maybe like where the um, Gorons live is its own thing. Death Mountain. The... It's a sort of pastiche of all sorts of different there's there's parts of ocarina of time in this there's parts of wind waker there's parts of probably a, now there's parts of majora's mask in a new dlc um you have sort of races from all these different games and and there are recognizable towns um there are new towns that are sort of not represented in, in older ones and there are different spaces that you haven't seen before but there's the gerudo and there's the Zora. temple of time is still the there. temple of time is there but it's it's really interesting the setting is i want to say i had post-apocalyptic written down but it's almost like post post apocalyptic because yeah. it's not like a grim everything's on fire and and destroyed it's like everything everything already burned down everything already got destroyed and now actually growth is starting to come People back people are building up from Exactly the yeah it's there's not like a there's not a whole lot of human settlements but there's like indications of like people coming back in a certain yeah. sense um, I think there's like a mythos that is like based on years that got me confused for a little while. But yeah. ten thousand years ago, right? Ganon came. Yes, and the hero and the Zelda. I mean, the princess. The princess. Uh, you yeah. know, locked de- him de- away. <laughs> yeah, they defeated him and right. they like crushed it like right. real good. Right. And right. so they were able to like there was like an age of peace. Exactly. They built these like robot things. Uh, like a lot of like little guardians is what they're called. And then four giant animal robots called the Divine Beasts. Um, and they were just like killing it. They were like right. everything was great for yep. like nine thousand nine hundred ninety years, and then a uh, hundred years ago in the game, in like the the timeline of the game, Ganon came back again. He pulled some like chicanery, infiltrated all the divine beasts and all the guardians. Yeah. So like what was once like the defense against Ganon became his kind of minions. Yeah. Um. So the kind of plans to send Ganon back because Ganon is like. Ganon's not a, a person or a pig monster. He's like a force. Calamity Ganon. Yeah, there's, there's a it. great line in that, which is that um, the history of the royal family of Hyrule is also the history of Calamity Ganon. Yeah, so it's not the history is class struggle. Exactly, right. Calamity Ganon. Rollover marks. Yeah. <laughs> it's time for a <laughs> it's new, Calamity Ganon. new force of It would have been cool if like Calamity Ganon had been like the disowned son of the Hyrule royal line okay right. anyway let's get into conspiracy <laughs> fan theories fan cast um, and so a hundred years ago ganon just kind of won yeah like he was never banished well right. he, he he's doing really well mm-hmm. and then zelda the princess who has this magical power to bind ganon right kind of sacrifices herself to bind him in like it in for a while basically right. link was mortally wounded he's put into this healing chamber mm-hmm. oh spoilers Sorry? Uh, yeah, th- I think <laughs> from now on, I mean, that's like the opening scene of the yes. game, so I don't know yeah. if that's a spoiler. So, so Link is mortally wounded, put in his healing chamber, a hundred years go by. Yeah. So now we're a hundred years past Ganon coming back, kind right. of ruining a lot of stuff, but right. then being bound. Mm-hmm. So a lot of stuff is bad. All of his minions are still out there. Mm-hmm. All these monsters, these these guardians, these giant divine beasts. Right. But people are kind of functioning, you know, like there's society. And, and importantly, like, there isn't a reign of chaos where like Ganon is it's not the it's not the second it's not the latter two thirds of Ocarina of Time where Ganon is king and everything is bad. Yeah. It's like Ganon is like focused around like the castle and there's this swirly blackness that inhabits and infects all sorts of things. But it also you also get the sense that like things are very disorganized on the baddies side as well. Yeah, that Zelda's binding like has done something to kind of restrict the ultimate destruction. Right. You right. Know? So, so there's this fundamentally, there's this fundamentally, it's 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 clear that something really bad happened, and there's all sorts of interesting like little artifacts around the world, like old stone things that look like they've been knocked over, and it suggests something bigger was there, some sort of building, some sort of settlement, you know, some sort of there's like a wall that's like overgrown and broken down that you pass through really on early on your way to uh, Haitano Village, I think it's when you're heading to Haitano Village. Um, but yeah, it's not a, it, it, again, it's this sort of post, post-apocalyptic post world where there's the potential for renewal and, and uh, regrowth and rebuilding, but it's just starting out. Um, and, so, and so because it's open world, a lot of older Zelda games, not all of them, but um, have sort of, you go to a dungeon, you finish that dungeon, you get an item there that unlocks a new area where you can go. And there's maybe- Essential RPG dynamic, right, right? Exactly. And there might be some spaces that you can go at all times of the game, but, uh, you know- 
Breath of the Wild is really like you can go to any of the divine beasts. There's four. They serve as like substitute dungeons, although they don't function the way dungeons do in, in regular, like older versions of Zelda. Um, they sort of they're more puzzles really that you yeah. put that you have to sort of put together. There aren't really any enemies in the dungeons until Not so the much. final boss. Right, you know? exactly. Exactly. So And interestingly, I, I found this I didn't know this till after I'd beaten the game is that you don't actually have to do any of the Divine Beasts. You yeah. actually don't have to do pretty much anything. Yeah. Like you can go... You can beat the game within two hours, I believe. Yeah, you can wake up, get mm-hmm. a stick, and go kill Ganon. I mean, yeah. It'd be really hard. Like, right. really, really, really hard. Yeah. Um, There's some really fantastic speed runs of, of, of just that that are really fascinating to watch. How people, <clears> like... They they clear, like they get a, a Pacoblin, which is like one of the basic enemies, to shoot a certain number of arrows at you because he knows he needs those arrows for the fight at the end. Like, I need 15 arrows, so I need to, him to miss a couple of times, and I'll pick up the arrows. It's the the math of speedrunning is fantastic and really yeah. fascinating, but um, so, so the game really just it's it's not kind of like step by step. It exactly. really is open world, you mm-hmm. know, in the sense that you get kind of the main quests at the start, like kill Ganon or defeat Ganon, uh, free the divine beasts, um, you know, find memories. These kind of like right. big quests. You don't mm-hmm. have, really have to do any of them, right? Um, but you can kind of do whichever one you want in any order, right? And it's it's very similar to I think what I was talking about um, last week I guess yeah. um, with emergent gameplay because right. whereas with Ocarina of Time each of us could tell our stories of yeah we got the Kokiri Emerald and the Goron's Ruby and mm-hmm. then the Zora's Sapphire Fire. right um, none of that necessarily had to be the stories that each of us exactly took to us. yeah there's not a there's, yeah there's there's all, there's a million different ways to sort of weave your way through the through that space although I I would say I think it does kind of like filter you towards things oh certainly yeah I got maybe two divine beasts in before I looked at a walkthrough which was big for me <laughs> <laughs> and I was going through and they're like here's the optimal way to do this and it was uh-huh. the exact thing I had done like the okay. order like first you do the Zora's domain then you do the Goron divine beast and I was like oh, why did I do it in this order? And I was huh. kind of thinking back about it. And yeah. like, I think there are certain ways that like where you are in the world, yeah. it kind of filters you towards the right way. You don't have to do it. Right. But like, it's kind of like, oh, well, you're on this path and you're like, okay, well, where's the closest one? This one. Oh, there's a path right up there. Cool. Yeah. And then you already like can figure out how to get there. Yeah. There's, I mean, that that gets to a larger question that I think uh, another object we're going to talk about today is, is a video by um, uh, Cool Ghosts, the YouTube channel Cool Ghosts called Breath of the Wild, colon, the best game ever. The title promises something <laughs> that, the, that fortunately, the video does not deliver. In fact, the, the video delivers some really thoughtful and interesting criticism. Uh, and, and again, not criticism, really, just sort of explanation, description, and, like, not just praise, but sort of highlighting of what's really interesting about Breath of the Wild, uh, where the question of whether or not the optimal route is visible or not. Like there are his his point. One of the points he makes is that the optimal way to play the sort of mechanics of like which things do I need to get in order to do things the best way that is largely hidden. I, I think we can debate whether or not that's the case. Whether it's like truly hidden the way he thinks it is, and he does say like eventually every game will show its optimal strategy to you if you play it long enough. Um, but let's talk about that when we get to that video because I think that's a really interesting point is the question of like mastery and sort of uh, you know optimal or best play and how that's operative in this game Uh, Terrell was there anything we we sort of left out that you feel like we need to hit that sort of describes what this game is like we didn't really talk at all about the gameplay experience but Uh, no I think I think probably most people will know about it at this point that's true I mean like other than the open world dynamic I mean the big Things are like breakable weapons, you know, right. consumables. You don't level up. Right. Yeah. It doesn't have like, you know, your more normal RPG dynamics. Instead, mm-hmm. it favors short-term consumables, upgrades and gear. Um, Potions and cooking, which is Very monster fun. huntery. As yeah, far as very monster yeah. hunter. And like your leveling up is more in terms of your skill and understanding of how to play the game. Because yeah. it gives right. you all the tools right. in the first hour. You know, literally every tool you're going to get in the entire game, you get in the first hour. Mm-hmm. Um, other than the ability to swim up waterfalls, um, which you get later. <laughs> right. But you can do pretty much everything yeah. right away with all your abilities, with yep. your weaponry. You get mm-hmm. you learn how to dodge jumps and stuff like uh, yeah. stuff like that. Um, and then it's just kind of your mastery of it is your level yeah. progression. Yeah, that's all Dark Soulsy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but I don't hate it. <laughs> the one thing I'd probably add, um, or maybe not add, but just sort of comment is like I don't know if there's much that we can say outside of what we have, just because um, I think this is a game where 
description and the way that we typically want to do it will probably come up short. Yeah. Um, and that's consistent with yeah. why I think Velsky is a good matchup. Absolutely, yeah. And, and I, I think this could lead us sort of into our person this uh, as a, as a segue into our personal experiences with this game and how we played it beyond mere description. Um, there's something for me for a while we were talking around the topic of maybe verticality in this game, and this is like a big uh, term in game design and, and games criticism. But one thing that stood out to me immediately, and that I think for many people does is when you start you start on this little it's called the great plateau and it serves basically as a tutorial space without feeling at all like a tutorial it's just a closed off space and you learn all the basic powers and you learn all of the basic mechanics of the game more or less it's a little microcosm of the game more or less and um like as soon as you leave your little heel chamber you find a wall and you like run up to it and then link just grabs onto it and starts climbing like you don't have to press any buttons there's no like points that you need to like here is a point where I can attach to this ledge and then jump up to this next ledge. Just like if you see a surface, you can almost definitely climb it. There's like almost no unclimbable surfaces. Um, and that the the limits in the game are not, uh, they're not like design. Like, you know, it's not like, okay, there's a invisible wall that blocks you off. Same with right. the Great Plateau. It's not right. like there's a giant thing where you can't get off the plateau. It's like, no, it's just high. And if you jump off, you're going to die. Exactly. Like that's it, right? right? And right. so instead of like these kind of artificial barriers, right. there are, I guess everything's artificial. In the game. Right, yeah, yeah. But, but there are these kind of built-in mechanical barriers. So you right. can only climb for your stamina wheel. Which right. disguise themselves well behind the environment design and the sort of game design and the sort of uh, you know narrative as well. It's just like they, they, they hide that stuff really well. That's actually a really interesting point. Um, one of the games that I think will receive a lot of comparisons to Breath of the Wild, Horizon Zero Dawn, mm-hmm. um, I only reached the edge of the map once, and it was this weird moment where the game was like, you've reached the edge of the map. If you pursue further past what you see here into what you can literally see, you'll have 10 seconds before the game reloads where you're saved. And I was just like, Ugh. that is punitive yeah it's <laughs> just like hey jerk don't even yeah. think about going out there what are you doing right like there is a like mechanic that was like literally within this like not even just like the systems of the game because like everything's a system in the game but sure. like it's in the system they were man. like yeah we reload you if you keep messing around yeah. and i was like wow why don't you just like have me die if i keep messing around you, that feels less like yeah ugh, do you know what happens in Borderlands 2 when you reach the edge of the world? Oh, there are these guns that come out and they're just <laughs> there's like... Just, there's just towers that like target you oh and you're god. like, what? And you get targeted and you just get blown up with oh rockets. Oh my god. <laughs> I forgot. I, I don't know if I ever even pushed the edge of a, of a Borderlands 2 map. Yeah. No yeah. edge, man. No edge. Borderlands 1. That happens. Is that the same thing in yeah, yeah. Borderlands? Yeah. They give you a slight bit of warning. They're like, you get like a beep, 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 yeah. and it says warning on your screen. Yeah. I saw, I thought it was a strange. I'm like, just put a wall there. But right. I guess yeah. like it's maybe a thing in kind of modern games. Yeah, like, you can't have that artificial barrier. Exactly. Even in, I mean, playing something like Assassin's Creed, like, you know, the the kind of point of Assassin's Creed is that you're in a game, you're in a reliving simulator yeah. that you're playing. You know, yeah. and so there'll be certain areas that it's like, oh, you're walled off, and I'm like, that's cheap. You know, I'm like give right. me something. You know, right. like. I don't know, give me something like I can't get up there because I can't climb that high. Right, so you exactly. like a mechanic, not just like, yeah, we get it. You can't get to this point yet mm-hmm. because that's later in the game, right? And 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 Breath of the Wild does it through. I think that handles it very well. Through yeah. like a big ocean that you just can't swim through uh, and it does it with like a big valley, like a big, there's like a big trench basically yeah. and then like beyond that is a plane that you just can't access. Um, so again, and, and it fits into this idea of disguising those mechanical, a wall is an obvious signifier of like, hey, this is where we stopped building the map that yeah. you're on, right? And that pulls you out in a certain kind And of we're way. gonna reload you. Everybody. Right, exactly. <laughs> I right. mean, you know, it's interesting because it's, it's kind of the designer's way of saying, we didn't build enough for you to do yeah. this. Right, or like, <laughs> hey, this is limited. This yeah. is a limited space. Yeah. And, and this, ga- like, open world games often aspire to giving you the sense that there isn't a limit yeah. to that so space. So it's tough where you balance that kind of the goal being wide-eyed nostalgia, you know, right, wide-eyed right. optimism about the world Happy, and your ability to explore vistas, it, uh, yeah. combined with like, no, I mean, like, there's game space, like you can't right. literally process right. everything, right? Right. And exactly. so managing that in a way that uses the mechanics of the game rather than artificial barriers, I think, yeah. is pretty neat. Well, uh, let's let's talk real quick about um, some of the things that stood out to us us each most. And I think I've already sort of talked a good bit about what... Yeah, you really got to stop talking. Me. Yeah, it's really, like, top top recommendation. It'd be great if you could just leave. All the emails that I've received that I received <laughs> You know, it's funny because I don't know if you all remember from our episode with Max on Twine Games, but 
Derek and Kyle are the same person. So I'm literally watching <laughs> someone being like, you should leave Tim Sullivan yeah. Amir. It's really uncomfortable in here. We More so than we it's totally been for the didn't past forget that. Year. Yeah, I mean, we're just like, this is like a moment of self-internal conflict playing out for you. <laughs> Terrell's not sure to ha- how, how to handle my reconciliatory nature and with And also, as, Kyle's we, as we learned in, in last week's episode, I'm also the bad boy of the, of the podcast. With an so, E at the end of the boy. But, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so this is just kind of like a fight club Actually, situation. Boy spelled B-O-I. Okay. I just wanted, I just have this, I just had this picture of a Shiba Inu with a leather jacket on and black sunglasses <laughs> and like Kyle's face. I remind you of a, of a Shiba Inu? I, that's, when I think I'm of, if, Doge? If, when I try to think of you as a bad boy, that's what comes to mind. I'm like, really a very cuddly person. Is it a like, puppy? Like, Shiba Inu? Shiba Inus like are just grown. small, so they're oh, like, yeah. it's not a puppy. They're the Doge. You but know? they're yeah. just, it's a little Doge. It's a tiny little Doge. I am doge. a pretty cuddly person, that's yeah. fair. I mean, right. I, you know, I do like fight people a lot. Right. Other than that. With, Whips and chains. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> so my, my experience with Breath of the Wild. <laughs> We're not cutting this. We're, this is all staying in. Oh, boy. Okay, so. so my, Tell us about your experience. Yeah, so I mean, I echo a lot of what Derek said about, you know, I got to this in a very busy time because, you know, life's just always busy. Um, and it was a beautiful, you know, I guess 40, 50 hours, you know, of time where I could just be like, oh, I'm just experiencing this beautiful world. But. For me, the kind of interesting thing comes at before I started the game. So I got the Switch from Terrell. Again, just email Terrell and he'll give you a Switch. Yeah, he'll just um, do it. A Switch, because I've got like Switch. so many. He's got, he'll give you his Switch. Um, yeah, where I actually was very hesitant to start playing the game. I, hmm. uh, I, pl- I put the game in. I got out of the healing chamber and like walked around a little bit. And maybe after 15 minutes, I was like, I, I don't know. Maybe I'll do something else. you know. And I would go do you know, read a book or go upstairs or do something, you know? Um, yeah, I got upstairs. No big deal. Uh, <laughs> I got that grad I, school I, money. I missed <laughs> that humble brag. <laughs> I didn't right over my head. It. Yeah, it's sad um, that that's a, a humble. Yeah, brag having an upstairs. <laughs> yeah, what we got stairs in this house. <laughs> yeah, Son. we don't even have a ladder anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Gonna install a slide pretty soon. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I just couldn't get into it. And so you know, I was hmm. talking with you know Derek and Trell and my wife, and I was like. Yeah, I'm married. What? Um, <laughs> oh, shit. Bad boy. Yeah, it was a beautiful ceremony. <laughs> yeah, I got two friends. Yeah, what? He's, got, he's got great pictures on his Facebook of it. Yeah. yeah. 700 what? photos. Professional what? photographer. Wow, wow yeah. that's a lot of photos. It is a lot of photos. Okay. And so, you know, I started. I started, you know, and I, I put in 10 or 15 minutes again, and I couldn't, like, put my finger on it. And finally, I was sitting there, and I had this moment where I was like, what if I don't like this game? Mm. You know? It, at this point, it had a 99 on Metacritic. I think it's down to, like, 97. <laughs> right. So really, you know, hard hit. <laughs> Took a dive. But I have not played a Zelda game uh, since uh, uh, Twilight Princess. No. Yeah, since Twilight Princess. And so so I never played Skyward Sword, um, which I heard, you know, kind of mixed reviews of. Right. It was good, but not anything. Good, but too long. Yeah, not anything really crazy. And I've, you know, I've probably spent more time in my life playing Zelda, Legend of Zelda games than anything else from, you know, the Ocarina of Time and Jorah's Mask to the original Zelda yeah. to the um, the Oracle of Ages, the Oracle of Seasons. Like, I've played all of the, almost all the handhelds. Yeah. And, yeah, I had this moment where I was like, I haven't played a game in three or four years, maybe, maybe, I don't know, whenever Twilight Princess came out. And I just started thinking, like, you know, what if, you know, I don't get that same feeling that I did when I would play these games growing up, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, becoming an adult, you know, I've finally given up on that. I mean, I, let's do this. I, I'm still on a podcast about video games, so like clearly <laughs> my adult level is maybe not as high as I yeah, was thinking. Yeah. Not quite 9,000. Not right. quite 9,000. <laughs> and, you know, I finally put in those like two or three hours, and yeah. like I said, it just clicked for me. You know, yeah. I was like, I'm in, I'm oh in it again, God. you know? Yeah. And then I had the subsequent, you know, because nothing can ever be good and happy, so I had the subsequent feeling of like, Oh well, how am I going to be critical of this for our podcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was kind of my feeling. Was the nostalgia really yeah. like was my concern, and then right. was my like saving grace, and then it was my concern again. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting, uh, Terrell. Tell us how did it? How did it? How did this go for you? So I think, and maybe I'm actually really curious if the listeners at home have picked up on this, but Derek did say that he got the switch. Like early March, yes. when the Switch came out, and the game came out, and 
functionally it was kind of a thing where I got a hold of it and then within a week was like, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. Terrell it, is a generous podcast. It really is. I mean, sure, that's a thing, maybe. Um, but it, it also was a matter of, I guess, a couple of things that led me to get to a place where I was just like, yeah, Zelda, not now. Mm-hmm. Um, and this at launch at that. Yeah. Um, and you're you're a bad person for thinking that. I just want to <laughs> put that out there. Fair. But. Yep. Terrible, horrible human yeah. being. Um, so yeah, you're it was this thing. Objectively wrong. <laughs> so, it was this thing where I was like, you know, I'd save some money mowing lawns. Um, it wasn't quite mowing lawns, but it was something functionally equivalent in my life. Um, and I was like, you know, I do have this amount of income that I can't afford to spend on a new Nintendo system. Brad. And, uh, I don't even have stairs. <laughs> that boy. Yeah, you got that stairs money. It wasn't stairs Come money. Come on. Switch money ain't stairs money. Yeah. Come on. Don't um, even compare that. And I just, you know, I guess the the thing that made me sort of want to make that investment was, you know, this is some Nintendo doing something interesting. Um, also, I was like, huh, Wii U didn't do so hot. You're not really doing the new next-gen thing all that well. This could be the last Nintendo system. I don't think that's yeah. true anymore. Right. Um, but I just kind of made that jump. Uh, but here was the problem, and I don't know dates exactly, but uh, the Tuesday before the Friday where the Switch and Zelda came out, or the Switch and Breath of the Wild came out, was uh, the release date for Horizon Zero Dawn. And... Jumping into Horizon Zero Dawn was great. I really enjoyed that game. Uh, I appreciated that it had these level up mechanics so that every time I killed something, it was like, here's stuff and here's experience points. And I spent forever in what was essentially the sort of quasi-tutorial mode because I was like, wow, this is really great. And so picking up Zelda and sitting on my couch that weekend to play it, um, it was just a number of things that just kind of came together that didn't really click if i'm being honest yeah again uh, bad person yeah terrible person <laughs> uh i was like wow i'm killing things but i don't have anything to show for it other than the weapon right. that they have yeah. i have a bunch of sticks yeah like why i have swords and axes and they all break why yeah, yeah right it's like, like the mo- the memento that i'm going to get from this battle is going to be broken in like another battle and then exactly. i have nothing to show for it exactly whereas horizon zero dawn i was like oh wow there's a field of like these like wolverines over there let's go fight them yeah and uh Breath of the Wild, it was like, oh, there's a bunch of things I can kill over there and sacrifice the durability of this weapon. Right. Nah, son. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was that was a repeat sort of thought in my mind. And huh. between that, between thinking about what it would take to juggle between Breath of the Wild and Horizon Zero Dawn, I was just like, eh. I'm already really into Horizon Zero Dawn. I'm yeah. not gonna really have the time to do it. It didn't hit it for you, is what you're saying. Yeah, so <laughs> you like, did not click in. Right, like, and and this is really interesting because, like, uh, so to quickly dip into the two, we have like one or two videos that we might post in addition to this. I think we'll just post both of them because why not? Sure. Um, there's there's a there's a video by I already mentioned his name, but the YouTube channel's Cool Ghosts. I mean, the big takeaway from the video is is that if we had British accents, we would have way more listens to it. It's podcast. really it's. It's, it's a it's just he like, is just a beautiful voice. it's kind of just like an extra like a like a bonus a starting yeah. bonus yeah. you know it's just we were like, trying yeah. to talk about just doing this whole accent this whole episode in British accents but Terrell wouldn't let us <laughs> it was more like I mean if I could trade my switch and Kyle's stairs for a good <laughs> British accent <laughs> how ma- how much of a good British accent could yeah, I get for these stairs? It's a dippy, you know? You play the game and it's dippy. Yeah, and the, the dippy thing. Okay, so, yeah. so, one so of let's, his, let's get into cool. One of, his first, uh, one of his first points about the game is that he sort of, quote-unquote, hasn't played a lot of it because he's dipping in and out of the game. And this is like, uh, you know, he said he's, he plays for 10 minutes or he's like cooking something and he's waiting for it so he'll play for 15 minutes or he's got like an hour here and he'll just pull out his Switch and just play it for a little while. And uh, the other video that we that we watched, uh, which is a, a fantastic title, um, "Stuff That Bugs Me About the Thing Everyone Likes Right Now" by Super Bunny Hop. That's another YouTube channel. Um, that that uh, that video is done in verse. The whole thing, all in rhyming verse. It's fantastic. But one of the first points that that he makes that Super Bunny Hop makes in that video is that he he binged it. Yeah. He played the whole like thing. Like 150 hours. Right in like, in like two, two weeks, weeks or yeah. something like that. It's like an insane like. Like, really a ton. I, th- I think it's hard to separate the fact that this game... There's It's hard to separate this game from a lot of facts. But one of them is that this is like basically the Switch release game. 
And the Switch is a is a console. We actually haven't described the Switch, mm. which maybe is uh, helpful for those who haven't seen it before. Yeah. It's a, it's a portable device that has sort of two. Terrell's holding it in the air. Um, again, send us an email, scholarsofplayedpodcast.gmail.com. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're trying to like up our visuals, it. you know, right. for this podcast, you know. Just, we're going to do some visual. Foley work here and so yeah. hold that closer to the mic. Hold that closer to the mic. Get, let them, let them, you know what? Turn mm. the thing on real quick and just give them a like, doo-doo. so it's, it's, a, it's a handheld console that you can slide into a sort of like port and play on your TV. And it's got some like little handles on the side. It, basically, it allows you to take your game uh, that you're playing in your living room and then also play it like on the subway. There it is. Aren't those sounds good? Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, nice. <laughs> it's very good. All the clicky clacky things, the menu, like it's beautiful. Yeah. So it, it is it is both a handheld and you just slot it into a little box right. and then it comes onto your TV. Exactly. And this sort of you know, Kyle, you were you were wondering if your time for Zelda has passed. And like I think that I mean I, I, I there's some really great uh, video. It's prom- it, it's borderline promotional. I mean it is PR stuff, but it's like really interesting stuff about how they made the game, stuff about the sound design and the music design, which is phenomenal by the way. Like all of the sound design is really top notch. But just like the question of like where does this where does a Zelda fit into a 30, 20, 40 year old's life? You know the range of people who played Zelda when it when it was really popular uh, in the eighties and nineties. It's in this. I think. I, I. I think they're expecting a lot of people to be like dipping in and out in the way that 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 guy that guy plays games. So I think that, you know that that um, the question of how you play the game and like how often you play the game really shapes. I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to say it's the sole cause or something like that. But there's there's an interesting connection between both the hardware and like material configurations of life now. The way like the the age of the person who might be buying this system. Uh, and, and like the, the gaming habits and the gameplay and the gameplay habits yeah. and gameplay like m- loops and mechanics yeah. and stuff like that. And in some ways, the the hardware might mold those habits, but right. in some ways, also, you know, someone like the Super Bunny Hop guy. Right. He, it seems like he would probably play any game on any system for 120. Exactly. Hours. Yeah. That's that's the sense um, that because he he's like you know a himself. hard completionist. Right. right? Exactly. And, and so the thing I find really interesting about these videos is, uh, cool the cool ghost video and the Super Bunny Hop video. Cool Ghosts loved Breath of the Wild, right? right? Even though, you know, he, he I think he offers some very good and kind of nuanced understandings of the game. Mm-hmm. He, it's pretty clear that he loves this game, right? Maybe it's not the best game ever, but clearly it's one of his favorite right. games ever. Um, Super Bunny Hop guy did not really like the game very much. Like, he had certain things about it that he liked, but he's like, it's not the best game ever. It has problems. We need to improve, blah, 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 blah. I don't think that these two guys actually would disagree very much about the game, though. Probably not. Because like, even though they're kind of operating from these two very different perspectives, um, they both kind of, I think there's both kind of a recognition that, especially in the Cool Ghost video, that he's like, this is the way I played the game, and I think the game encouraged it the way that I play it, but for some people maybe who love completionism, this game is probably a chore, you know, to get... 900 Korok seeds and 120 whatever mm-hmm. shrines. Um, like, that's probably a chore. Cut to Super Bunny Hop, who's like, this game is a chore trying to get through right, all this stuff, right? Right, right, exactly, um, yeah. So they weirdly kind of have some sympathetic, you know, ways of understanding the game. Uh, even if, you know, one of them says, it's okay, it's mediocre, and the other says, it's amazing. It made me experience life in a beautiful British mm. way. Adventure, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Again, yeah. we need to be British. Yeah. Are you a British guest star? We absolutely should. Like that guy? Yeah, let's get him in. He seems I'm sure really nice. He does a podcast. You can fly him that... in with your stairs money. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you sell one or two of your stairs, <laughs> your golden stairs? You know, on that point. <laughs> and it turns out he sold his British accent for for Golden Stairs for you. And like, it was just, you know, what are you going to do, right? Gift of the <laughs> British Magi. So, on that note, what I find to be absolutely beautiful. No, oh God, we killed Kyle. <laughs> we did. I finally, I finally killed my alter ego. Now it's just me, the mild mannered good boy. <laughs> Terrell, you were you were saying. So what I love about that, and what I love about um, criticism with a soft C, rather than a A hard C, a lowercase C, yeah, a lowercase criticism. It's just criticism, you know. So I'm just critiquing, yeah, right, yeah. Um, Criticism that perhaps, um, in the words of a poet, Billy Collins, can let something sort of glide across the surface of the water or float. Uh, rather than having to tie it down to a table 
and force a confession out of it, which I think is <laughs> what really you know, sort of what really what Felsky I think is is calling out a criticism, is that we can we can take the the object that is Breath of the Wild and we can take both um, Super Bunny Hop and Cool, cool Ghosts. Ghost. Cool Ghosts. Yeah. Uh, and say, okay, yeah, they are clearly referring to a stable object in the world mm -hmm. that has a certain set of mechanics and an objective reality, but that object can move through two different experiences of life in very different ways. Absolutely. And that, that ability to say, well, wow, now we're learning something about the world, not just in terms of what is out there, but what has the world produced in terms of the sort of subjectivities of these two people uh, in really interesting ways. And and this is like this is what I think the cool ghosts guy does so well at the end of his video, where he sort of he 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 zooms back out at the end of his video at the end of his video essay about this game and says, well, how you know? Okay, so there, I've I've described some specifics about my way of interacting with the game, and like he makes some points about the map yeah, and how the about, map works, how like right, adventuring, works. right, exactly, and 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 again, how we mentioned before the obscuring of mechanics. Um, but his his ultimate focus at the end of the essay, which I think is really important, is like how does the game make us feel, yeah. or like what is what is our mood? What mood does the game produce in us? And and he says that like, and I think this is super important to always reiterate. We are often it, it, there's often an attempt to market the aesthetics of a game, the visual uh, nature of a game, as the thing that is going to make us feel. And his point, he says something like maybe like. The, the the promise of the aesthetics is never fulfilled, right? Like, like that's never the thing that's really going to let us connect with the yeah. thing emotionally or produce a mood in us. That it, it always goes beyond that. It always goes to these these little design decisions to again, like show you how many um, what are the things you get at the end of the shrine? It's like a little orb or something like spirit that. Orb. The spirit orbs. It show you how many spirit orbs you have, not how many you have out of the total yeah. number exists. So not many, how much, how much you have left to do, but how exactly. much you've already accomplished. Or to like make the map relatively clean and definitely like uh, unfilled in until you've gone to a tower. And again, this is a very common thing in Ubisoft games, but there there is something about like you know it, there's something about the concept of being like from that tower you can actually actually see not just on the map but with yeah. your eyes turning your you know uh, character around and the camera around. You can see the things that would be on the map. Right. I think that's one of his bigger points was that, you know, deciding where to go is a little literal question of, oh, I see it. I think I can get there. Yeah. Let me just go. Right. Rather than, and, you know, I hate to kind of do this, but I guess, you know, point Breath of the Wild over uh, Horizon Zero Dawn. Mm -hmm. There are something in Horizon Zero Dawn that I would have benefited greatly from getting throughout the playthrough of the game, but I didn't realize it because it was a part of the map, and I was just like, oh, well, someone will explain to me what that is at some point in time. Right. Never did, and mm -hmm. then I was just like, wait, I reached the end of the game, and I have none of those things that let me do this thing. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wait, it's these five things. And so right. then I went and rushed through them right quick, and I was like, that would've been really cool if I could've played the yeah. game and had that all. Right, exactly, that. yeah. I think, so, I you know, I, I like both these videos, and again, mm -hmm. like, I thought they, you know, they're very simpatico in the way they yeah, kind of thought yeah. of the game weirdly. Um, I did have a, a couple problems. Okay, yeah, let's. <laughs> I think yeah. um, you know, in my very you know uppercase uh, capital C yeah. criticism, hard C, <laughs> hard C, hard C. Critic. criticism, Critic. Um, with a K, with a K. Yeah, I think yeah. the cool ghost guy. It seems you know. He didn't seem very like nostalgic. He wasn't like, oh, it made me feel like I was playing Majora's Mask. Right. Again. You yeah. Know, he did mention Majora's Mask was his favorite game, I think. Or is that the other guy? Interesting. One mm, of them said I that. I can't remember. I think it's Super that. Bunny Hop. Yeah, okay. it might have been Super Bunny um, And he says some things that I kind of found contradictory about mm -hmm. the game. Because I yeah. think what makes Breath of the Wild so good, and this is kind of going off with Felsky, is it takes that nostalgia that you would probably have, you know? Yeah. And it filters it into what is always also a very good game, you right. know? Right. And I think he's trying to say, like, no, no. The, the mechanisms, the mechanics of it, what makes it great. Like he says, yeah. like the map is so great because right. it's like this kind of tool, which is right. you know what maps were for. And he has this great line. Where he says, like you know, back when maps were maps and men were also maps. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> really good. His <laughs> videos are funny. like really well made, um, and very funny. So which, yeah, I just wrote yeah. that down because I was like, that's great. Yeah. That's a really funny joke. Yeah. Um, but he says, you know, the map is like what a map used to be. It's kind of like an information and it's a tool. And I'm like, right. I'm like, okay, I guess. I mean, the map is interactive. You know, he says, right. when we think of maps, we think of Google Maps where, you know, like it already gives you all the information. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, I mean, the map in Breath of the Wild does give you all the information. Like it tells you where you need to go. It tells right. you where yeah. you are. It's not like just a map. You're right. like, here's your beacon. It's beeping right. glowing blue. Right. Here's where that thing is that yeah. you mark, right. right? And then he says later in the video, 
and he's like, what's so great about the map is that it's an interactive, active part of your game. You mm-hmm. know, where you look through your telescope, map something. Yeah. And I'm like, but you just told me like 10 minutes ago. Right. And, and the Firewatch tool. example kind of hurts him because yeah. it seems like what you're trying to say is that Breath of the Wild, Firewatch example, same. It's and, the same. and it's right. not. Because no. in Firewatch, you get like a literal, like, you know, like a map that is not, it's just like a piece of paper in right. the game, right. right? That you can see and you have to kind of figure it out with mm-hmm. a compass. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so I was a little. I, I feel like maybe that was a little bit of the nostalgia overwhelming it too. I mean, yeah, late, maybe yeah. later he says, you know, like he said, right? Graphics are not what makes a, a game great. Right? Yeah, he talks a lot about like Minecraft and like mm-hmm. the feeling of like exploration, yes. really discovery good. in Minecraft. That's a great comparison, right? It doesn't have to do with graphics; it has to do with gameplay designs. Mm-hmm. But then he says the reason that Breath of the Wild is so amazing is because of these vistas and these views yeah. and this feel like it'll be raining and it'll be hazy and then yeah. you'll jump up to a thing and then you turn around and you see this like glorious yeah. valley laid out in yeah. front of you. How does that happen without really good graphics? And right? and and the and it's a video essay that he's doing this yeah. with and I and I am sure I always feel this way whenever I like have visual images in a presentation or a video. It's like I am definitely like people are enjoying this because that that is a beautiful screenshot. Yeah. And he sort of even though it's not like hyper realistic, right, you know, like right. that's not the point. And it's it still is beautiful. Right. It's still like it's still it wouldn't be this beautiful adventure if it didn't also look quite pretty. <laughs> and I get, I totally get what he's saying because I feel the right. same way. Like I'm a hiker. I hike a lot. And yeah. I've had that same experience he had where like I'll do, you know, like a, like a 15 mile hike up and turn around and be like, I was there, you yeah. know? And like, that's crazy. You know, like, yeah. it's just, like, right. that, like I, I, this just happened, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I do the same thing in Breath of the Wild where you get to like the top of some tall mountain and be like, that's where the shrine was. Right. You know, exactly. like that I was just at. Yeah. That's crazy, you know? Yeah. But I don't think that happens without the kind of like aesthetic of these kind of wonderful graphics yeah. that it has. Right. You know? Yeah. It's, I it's, think that um, that also gets to something that Felsky talks about a little bit. And I didn't um, want to get too bogged down into this. But what Felsky sort of mentions is that if we're able to approach um, cultural objects in a more nuanced way, we'll start to see certain boundaries between things collapse. And one of those boundaries, I think, is could be the sort of aesthetics of a um, of a game versus its sort of hard mechanics, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. I think this is similar to a narratology versus ludology, but mm-hmm. this is more like, you know, it's one thing to say that like there's mechanics in Pac-Man versus the actual sort of aesthetics being circles, squares, kind of squiggly looking, yeah. so on and so forth. And I think that where Cool Ghosts wanted to get to maybe was a place where you could sort of say that that sort of design aesthetically and graphically had some type of mechanical importance mm-hmm. where you're able to see where it was that you were. Yeah. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, maybe the the power of that is that the sort of mechanical then registers to something that isn't quite mechanical, right? So yeah. you're seeing yeah. back where you yeah. were isn't yes. really like a mechanical realization. Right, it's like a, it's emotional. Right, is what, yeah. right. Which right. was his kind of ending yeah. thing. Which I should, again, I totally agree with, right? right. Like Same. We should think more in terms of like yeah. emotions and not just like, or not just like I'm happy, I'm sad, but like how right. does this game like make you feel? And, and, and just like don't let... Don't let the PR campaign of like, wow, the best cutting edge graphics. Like, yeah. don't let that actually tell you how you should feel about it because you'll end up feeling like you didn't feel the way you were supposed to at the right times or something like that. Or like there was some promise that was like never yeah. fulfilled. Like there are, there are other, like I think his move is is a good and healthy yeah. shift away from that. Um, well, I think that's going to wrap it up for us yeah. unless we had any other concluding thoughts. Um I think, you know, I mean, just really quick about yeah, the Super sure. Bunny Hop video, yeah. um, which I think is also great. Also, it's in 12 minutes of rhyming verse. So like, which I is mean, fantastic. Like Impressive. Crazy. It's another um, a, it's another example where like it's like it is a very critical piece, but like he does it in verse. And like, that's not part of criticism usually. No. So it's just another again, along with the theme. What was that sorry. perfect quote? Oh, yes. Oh. That's, that's what I wanted to bring okay, up. OK, yeah, think, please you know, do. Like he 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 probably is representing more of this kind of like harder criticism of like, you know, he, he has a, de- a detached React like realism that these you know, you know simpletons that are reviewing it on Metacritic. Right, right. Toad. He doesn't say this, you know. Right. Um, but you know you kind of get that sense. You're like he, he, you know, he says like I didn't read any reviews. I just put my hours in the game, and like right. these were my pure un, you know, processed thoughts. Right. You know, like the, the you know that weren't affected by media or outside right. you know effects. And I'm like I'm not sure if that's the case. yeah <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, he right. has a great quote at it the end, good. which does rhyme. Uh, where he says, you know, kind of defending himself because he's saying, you know, this is probably going to, like, upset people that, like, I don't love this game, right? right? And he says, perfect games don't exist, good criticism shouldn't make you pissed, and different tastes can happily coexist. 
right? It's beautiful. So is there any better way to like end? The yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think and like, we all have different feelings. Right. You know, no right. one is right. No one's wrong. Right. Let's just all be happy, joyous people together yeah. in this beautiful world. Yeah. That we <laughs> Welcome to Scholars of Death. Compare this to our immigration episode where we're all just <laughs> sad and upset. To just <laughs> I think this episode only happens at the very end of summer right now. Yeah. What we just we're all did. Just like, it's like we're it's all so just like, outside. oh man, you know, I have things to do, but like whatever. It's I like can wear summer. like t-shirts all the time yeah. so I don't have to teach or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Life's great, guys. Yeah. You don't teach in t-shirts. No. Got to edit and post. Because <laughs> I, I have some respect for myself. Oh, oh also, cool, cool ghosts, uh, solid slam on destiny. Let's put that in there. Oh, yeah. There was like a little bit of a, a he, little just he, like, You know, he, he says, you know, like, you know, people can have different takes on games. You know, mm -hmm. destiny could be seen as boring and repetitive <laughs> or as like a meditative exercise. And right. I was like, you're solid. You're right. Correct yeah. assumption. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the lawn order of gaming, which is bum, great because sometimes bum, you want to get bum, home and bum, not have to think about things. Right. And find a dead body in the pool or something. And just, nope. Dung, dung, dung. Dung, dung. That's or find best. a new piece of game. Dung, dung. Yeah. All right. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to say goodbye. We're going to say thanks and goodbye. Um, if people would like to talk to us about... Breath of the Wild, the limits of criticism. They should probably talk to someone else. But if they yeah. really want to talk to us, you just guys... open your door and yell. Right, and we'll probably <laughs> hear it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so you can send us an email uh, at scholars at playpodcast at gmail .com. You can also check out scholars at play .net. It's our Got website. Got a website, new website. Got that stairs money website. <laughs> yeah. On that it. briefly, um, I'm actually really into uh, the limits of critique and what some are calling anti-critical or anti-interpretive or maybe post-critical uh, moves. And to try and maybe give some more background and some depth into the Felsky, I will try by next week to post a um, short thing on the blog. Um, maybe longish that kind of gets into that cool. a little bit more. Yeah, I'm definitely I have I'm kicking around an idea about um, player unknowns battlegrounds because yeah. I'm back on that battleground and I, there's 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 lots of stuff going on there. And I do I so I have a website as well. Yes. It's just not live, <laughs> where I have six unfinished blog it. posts, <laughs> six half finished See, blog posts. So. We're gonna we're gonna be producing text for y'all. Yeah, that's what we want. So, hashtag content. Hashtag come get it. Uh, so Kyle, where can people find you online? Uh, at e uh, at, on Twitter yes, at e Twitter. underscore Kyle underscore Romero. I also feel like I promised in the first episode that I would write a haiku to anyone who you commented did. on our SoundCloud. Yeah, and I feel like that's been hugely underutilized. Really, I will still write a haiku. I for anyone. I wrote a comment and I got a haiku in like thirty or forty seconds. It was I actually it was I really I was <laughs> impressed too. I like. <laughs> So uh, I, I will I will stay with the that. Offer. I yeah. yeah I will re-extend the offer. I will write a haiku for anyone who comments on you our SoundCloud. Write a bunch page. of Destiny haikus. <laughs> like ninety-seven time. comments from Terrell. <laughs> <Nothing> but time. <laughs> Terrell, where can people find you on the internet? They can find me at Black Socrates. I am on Twitter at digital underscore Derek. Reach out to us, please. Let us know what you think of the new format. Um, we've got the What's in Your System episodes yeah. broken off. I think it's gonna be a little more digestible, a little more enjoyable. Um, so I want to thank all of the, you know, I, I added this, we haven't done this before, but I want to thank the authors and creators whose work we've discussed in this episode. Yeah, I feel that, and that should be, that goes back yeah. to all the things we've done. Like y'all are helping us do what we do and it's, and we really, uh, we really appreciate y'all doing your hard work. And um, everything we've been critical of, I think is out of love, you, you know, know, it's, it's like out of truth. respect right. for any, for every, anybody who's engaging in games criticism. Exactly. Like even if we disagree, right. right we can all coexist happily. We're all right. as many engaged. issues as there are. I mean, it's kind of part of the game. Yeah, you know. exactly. Nice. So um, I just want to throw that in there. And we also want to thank Visager for the use of his freely available song, The Plateau at, uh, the Plateau at Night. That's and his other show. song, The Plateau at Night. The Plateau at Night. It's the sequel. <laughs> it's the Great a... Plateau at Night. Yeah. yeah the... Hey! Oh, nice. hey. Uh, and if you're in Nashville, I wanted to quick just give a shout out to an event that's going to be starting this coming fall semester. Um, we'll be hosting a talk and play series at the Center for Digital Humanities at Vanderbilt. Um, check social media for more details about this. But basically... Um, once a month, we're going to get together, uh, play a game or a few games. Uh, I or someone else, but probably me, often will set up some sort of conceptual framework, some theoretical terms, kind of similar to what we do here. And then we'll just sort of play through the game for 40 minutes, 45 minutes in groups or like to, uh, all together and then talk through them. And hopefully there'll be some food. And uh, so I'm really excited about that event. That'll and be... we'll probably have concurrent Scholars at Play episodes exactly. about the talk and play. So yep. if you are... A listener in the Nashville area yeah. who really wants to come Please to do. the talk Especially and play or is interested in heroes. becoming a guest. <laughs> oh <my> yeah. God. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We are your that's heroes. That's us. <laughs> that's, that's me. It's your hero. 
Um, the, the I, I wanted to tell the, the 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 topic for the first one is going to be uh, games and resistance, protest and organizing. So super uh, light, yeah, really super casual, fun. super fun. Really, just like a great. Intro. We jumped off the critical Marxist train real fast. <laughs> yeah. Just like, just to remind you of who we really are. Yeah, um, I, yeah. There's going to be future like October is going to be um, playing until dawn together as a group, and that one's going to be a lot. A lot less uh, super serious. That'll be a lot more fun, more spooky for Halloween. Um, so that'll too be fun spooky. too. So if you, yeah, if you if you would prefer to get uh, scared by scares instead of politics, come to that <laughs> one instead. And that's gonna wrap it up for us. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, we'll see you later. Bye, guys. Be easy.